the best cue I can give you is, I think is good choice. You know what I mean? Like, Hey, the gap was open. You took it. Good choice. Mm-hmm. Hey, you adjust your tackle technique based on what the offensive player actually gave you. Hey, great choice. You probably took the choice that's most associated with winning the play in that situation based on my personal experience of having watched the game. My, you know, this, like I said, tackling people is all I've ever done, whether it's football or rugby as a player or a coach. So I hope that's worth something. But if I say good choice, like to me, that means we've designed a good drill, a decent situation that makes you adapt and react. And we think you've done what's going to be appropriate to win the situation when you see it on game day. That's so much better than like, man, I love that shin angle, I think. Because that, <laughs> that's not applicable to chaos. That was Andy Ryland, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle stimulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System in KBox or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that, as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the Contact Grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to episode 170 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. On the show, we have guest Andy Ryland. He is the Senior Manager of Education and Training at USA Football. He's done so since 2010. Andy was a former Penn State linebacker. He was a member of the U.S. men's rugby team. And Andy was recommended to me by a couple of the uh, former guests that I've had on the show as a guy who's an expert in long-term development, uh, just training the skills needed to be good at the game and doing so in a way that prioritizes the athlete, well, and we'll get into the human first, the athlete second, and then the sports specialist itself third. So doing so, so knowing how to win, but doing so in a way that really truly values the athlete and their overall total holistic development. And really, it just doesn't get any more real than that. Um, those are the things I love talking about. We know you've listened to some of the prior episodes with uh, guests like Dr. Tommy John and what a crisis we have in our youth sport culture. 
And we're definitely going to get into the bandwidth of long-term development today and optimally developing athletes. But this is also uh, material that the strength coach who works in the, say, university sector can really appreciate. Because at the end of the day, I don't think that there are some sort of silos for sure based off of where exactly you're working. But skill development is such a critical aspect of training athletes how they learn, how they learn long-term. How does this fit into what happens in the game? And these are all really important questions. And Andy is has such a fantastic knowledge at A to Z, developing those processes from a youth all the way on up. He also is an expert foremost, and he'll get into this a little bit on the show today, and specifically with the bandwidth of cueing internal and external, when do we need to do it with tackling? Because like he'll mention on the show, and for good reason, If you allow too much self-organization and tackling, you can guess what might happen. So uh, hopefully that's just a little bit of a teaser, too, of what we're going to get to. So that all being said, in our our show today, Andy is going to dig into the difference between free flow and structured sports. So, for example, the difference between football and basketball. What are we getting out of those sports in the perceptive and reactive, the decision-making space? And I think this stuff really just tunes us into what does it mean to be a good athlete outside of strength, outside of forces, having a full-spectrum appreciation for the different reactive and decision-making qualities of all these different sports and how they fit together. Uh, He's also going to chat about bandwidth on cueing and instruction, so obviously tackling, but any other drills. And again, we know that we do tend to live in a little bit more of a drill-centric world, especially in the youth sports world, and the way athletes are developed very robotic. And so what's the bandwidth on robots versus total free-for-all? What, where do we find this way to lie in the, the appropriate space to teach our athletes these drills without being over over coaching? essentially? He's also going to chat about speed training, context of USA football, barbell training, selecting a secondary or off-season sport if an athlete does have a primary sport, some ideas that go into selecting what other sports they may do, and a whole lot more. This was a really fun show with a guy who is really intelligent and really pushing the field forward when it comes to the best interests of our athletes on a human first, athlete second, and specialist third level. So without further ado, I give you this show with Andy Ryland. I know you said you've been in sports like your whole life, dual sport. Um, What's your story and how did you get into USA football? Yeah, I think it's actually complete luck. Uh, Not much talent in it, but... So as you mentioned, I was a, a dual sport collegiate athlete. I played being football at Penn State University. Uh, I tell everyone I have eight career starts, like no grandioso story there, career backup. Somebody got hurt, you played a couple games, you went back to the bench when they got healthy. Uh, but I was a little bit better at rugby. I was an All-American in rugby. And I spent three years with the U.S. national team and got to you know travel the world and play overseas and do all that cool stuff. Well, uh, after I got done coaching and realizing that collegiate coaching wasn't for me, just with the recruiting and the time demands and, and everything else, I kind of was left with this unique situation where I understood international standards. I knew what a you know a U16 and a U18 meant. I understood training academies in the kind of the European system, be it soccer or rugby. But I also understood the game of football. So. Here in the States, again, most soccer coaches would be very familiar with, you know, U16s, U18s, U21s. Most football coaches are only familiar with the varsity model. So I guess I just had a unique uh, 
uh, set of experiences that allowed me to understand and speak football, but also be able to apply it to kind of the international model and things that are happening within the USOC or with other governing bodies. Or if you go to a, a national or a world championship, they're obviously going to play, you know, U18 style football or senior men's style football. And that experience allowed me to uh, find a unique role here because I guess I could help translate back and forth between the different setups fairly well. Yeah. Outside of um, like outside of the tackling element, I mean, how much for strategically and, and as soon as you mentioned that with the dual sport and the rugby I, and football, I, I instantly think of like, like, like high school, a great, a great dual sport is football and then run track. Um, but like, instead of like, I was thinking like, well, instead of the sevens, like what if, I mean, rugby, I mean, like rugby would probably be a good alternative as well to football, but there's still like the hitting element. Like, do you think that, um, and also I, I, I being around the aquatics world, I know, uh, like swimming water polo players used to do be dual sport, like swimmers. So you do do one and then the other. And, uh, do you think that that was, uh, what do you think like the dynamics of that as a dual sport is like, do you think that would be beneficial for football players today to play rugby or, or what's your take on that? Yeah, so there's there's two lines of thought on that, and and the one is uh, the games are actually remarkably different outside of of kind of the tackle area, and I would equate rugby more towards a, a lacrosse or a, a hockey, and that it's a free flow sport. You know, there's no huddle, there's no stop and play. The decision making is being made by the players on the fly based on what happens, and the ball is changing hands and going back and forth just in the realm of free play where football is the most martial nature of all, of martial of all sports where we stop, we huddle, the coach tells us exactly where to line up, exactly what to do, all those things. So I think it's great for football players because I think it teaches them a little bit more about reading spaces, understanding decision-making thought process, playing within flow, seeing the opportunities and making those choices uh, on the other side, if somebody were to say, hey, do we want two high collision load sports, you know, in one in the fall and one in the spring? Uh, is that the best mm-hmm. model? Do we want to try to reduce some of that load? Um, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to that either, but I think they complement each other really well. Uh, you're going to get a, a huge amount of, of physical training volume from the running uh, volume within rugby. There's some great evasive skills. Plus, like I said, the uh, the reading and spatial awareness that you just, it's different in rugby than it is in football. It's the only way to explain it. If you haven't been in both sports, it's just that martial nature versus I'm on the field. Like in an international rugby game, the coaches are required to be in the press box. There's not hmm. somebody on the side of the field yelling at you. Interesting. Move. So like your entire week is preparing the players to make the best choices and execute the tactical game plan. I do think it's something that football coaches could learn quite a bit from. And for my personal development, what it did is free flow sports, soccer, basketball, lacrosse, hockey, whatever it is, uh, small sided games uh, are much more common because you're training these players in dynamic environments and decision making and the offense to defense transition, that free flow. So being exposed to that, I was always like, well, how does this apply to football? Can we make things a little more small-sided game-ish as opposed to drill-ish? Now, in football, if your average play is six seconds, it may still look like what we would consider a drill, but we can start layering in more context, more decision-making, and have a bit more of a small-sided game feel to it 
and hopefully develop players with a greater game sense, greater football IQ, uh, greater attunement, whatever you want to call it, based on your school of thought. We can develop those things instead of maybe the overly reduced structured drill. So I think that aspect from all free flow sports, but rugby, again, because of the tackling aspect, carries over immensely. Yeah, that's exactly what, as soon as you said that with like rugby and free flow, I, that's instantly what I was going to ask you is how that filters into like kind of the curriculum and the model for football. And I was just thinking right back to what Jeremy Frisch was saying about free play and creativity and pick up basketball. And, it, and I was even having that pick up basketball conversation with other coaches re- recently and, and just like the creativity um, that that creativity being such a key element, it it strikes me that something like football could get really structured really quick, and especially for like athletes who specialize too, um, like they they would almost get put in a box so fast. And it seems like, um, but yeah, like you said, like that rugby, um, like like yeah, tackling similar everything else, free flow and and like, and I know I I think I struggled a little bit. Uh, um, in the sense like basketball well I played well, I shouldn't say that like I played soccer and loved it um, maybe I was bad at basketball relatively speaking to my athleticism for different reasons <laughs> not to make this about me anyways um, so what um, th- that that kind of brings me to uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you Andy was like um, this this like and I just talked about this on my last podcast with Doug Kachigian but like that self-organization to instruction model um, and cause to me, like that's, that's the gray area, right. Especially with youth. And I know we've, we were talking a little bit before about like the individualization, the individual nature of all that. But when it comes to developing athletes, what's the bandwidth on, on, on how much instruction we give them and when we really start quote unquote coaching these athletes up more, uh, as they get older. Yeah, uh, I love the term bandwidth. It's a term that I actually use a ton because I think, right, and, and you see it, the conversation has got so black and white when the answer is probably in the gray. Uh, football and rugby are, are unique situations because the contact aspects have this definitive safety component around them, right? So the choice like, hey, are we going to let someone self-organize into a tackle? What if they self-organize into a manner that says, like, I'm going to, you know, lead with my helmet and try to hit them with the hardest part. Well, we clearly don't want that. And I don't think anyone who's a self-organization coach is doing so without cues and without setting a technical model, but we have to obviously be a technical model. And before we can allow speed and intensity to come into the drill, we have to kind of put that checklist on ourselves that we feel good about their ability to do so correctly. We had talked about earlier about you know, is this player able to achieve the postures and positions that we think uh, are going to be beneficial, whether it's from a performance standpoint or a safety standpoint, before we start to open some things up? So we probably teach and instruct a little bit more, especially when it comes to those contact aspects. But I think the gray area is when we get into the actual drills, and I, I say this with a lot of the coaches Uh, youth, high school, even up through collegiately, is that like, why on the first rep of the drill are we instantly shouting so many cues and corrections? Like, if we've done a good job teaching the drill, then how many reps realistically, even with a high-level athlete, are going to be needed for them to sort it out in their own body? Okay, I know you want me to do these things. Now I have to figure out how to make my body do it. And sorting it out in your own body may take two or three reps. 
And so can I let them explore? I think the coaching cue I give, again, just me personally, on the first rep of a new drill more than any other one is, it's cool. Like first rep, you'll sort it out. Here we go. And we let them go again and try to let them find it before we start nailing them with, with the, all these other specific cues and details. The other thing that I'm a fan of is dealing more in principle than in the, like the specifics. And again, I think football in the martial nature, we get incredibly detailed and guys are talking about six inches and 130 degree angles and all this and those sorts of things where if we're dealing in principles, then we can allow the athletes some bandwidth uh, to try to find what works for them inside of those things. Because again, we have a hundred years of football video and coaching lineage and history to think there aren't some principles that we believe are most associated with correct outcomes, we'll say within the tackle. Well, we're just not going to completely ignore those. But if I'm going to say, hey, cleats in the ground, leg drive, and I want in solid clamp and grip, those are generally associated with a good tackle. Now, if my tackle aim point is the mid thigh, the belly button, or the near the near pec and you know striking through the chest area, my body position is going to be completely different as a tackler. That's going to affect my lower body shin angles. That's going to affect my leg drive. But if I keep my cleats in the ground and try to generate controlled leg drive, those things are associated with a good outcome. So now we'll let people play within those concepts and figure out how they can best do it based on maybe how I bend, how strong am I, can I even hold that position? Uh, and I, I think Doug, who's obviously a genius and a guy I, I really look up to, you know, talks about that, like if I have a physical limitation and my self-organization is around that limitation, well, what happens if I can clear that limitation? That opens new opportunities for me. You know, if we're going, hey, there's a new affordance that I didn't have before, maybe I can take advantage. Now, it's not guaranteed to occur, but we're increasing the potential for new solutions because the human being now has been upgraded, we'll say. They have a new chassis in the car. They can bend. They can move. Maybe they're able to create more power. If that unlocks new opportunities and it's coupled with good decision-making thought process, attunement, whatever we're going to say, uh, they can take advantage of that thing. So there's just this constant balance back and forth of letting them find what works for them uh, versus what history has shown us has been associated with really good outcomes. And then are there low-hanging physical changes we can make that would improve a motor output that may give that player a new option? I think that's the art part of it, right? And we can do all the studies and read all the science, but at some point it's, you know, I'm looking at this athlete and I'm thinking the low hanging fruit is they're not understanding this concept. I can give them a quick coaching cue. The low hanging fruit is they're lacking in a physical quality. Maybe we need to address that off the field, whether it's with the trainer, whether it's with the strength and conditioning coach or, or those sorts of things. But I think too often, for football specifically, the answer is always more cueing is going to solve it and more strict we are to the technical model, we're going to solve it instead of operating in that bandwidth mentality of can I accomplish these principles within my own body and what my physical structure is capable of. Yeah, it seems like tackling in particular is one of those things that 
you know, I was just thinking about, you know, we, we both have children and we see them grow up and, and do all these skills like, and like our, our youngest each like love throwing the ball and we'll do it, you know, forever. And like, or kids playing tag, but I mean, tackling is a skill that doesn't, I mean, kids are, <laughs> the kids will go to the playground just you know, randomly. I mean, maybe they do a little bit like boys, especially, but like, you know, tackling, tackling in a game situation is probably a little less of a, maybe you could say like a natural or innate skill compared to throwing and running and jumping and things that if kids do a lot of, they're not going to necessarily, you're not going to sit there and have to tell them how to do it. Um, but so, so it seems like tackling is something that you probably, that probably requires more instruction relative to some other skills that you're trying to work like, or I'd imagine even like agility. Like I don't, I wouldn't, I, this is just my thought, but I wouldn't think that you'd have to work with, um, you know, a 10, 11, 12 year old on how to change direction or anything like that nearly like like the skill of a tackle was that is that kind of um is that on point or am i uh what's your no, thought i i think you're 100 right because i mean uh the like you said the the nature of the safety mechanisms of body positions body postures head placement you know spinal alignment all those things that go into a tackle we probably want to control a little more just to establish really good understanding mm-hmm. of those principles at first where you know, we're probably going to talk about, you know, spine in line or, or, or iron rod through the spine, making sure that, you know, our head is up or keeping good, solid positions through our upper body into the tackle because it's so important. We'll use age appropriate coaching cues and terms, but like those postures and that alignment is really important because we all know what happens if you push your head down or you lead with your head. Mm-hmm. I am going to, even though at an 11 year old, I may be talking about the importance of of our head angle and our neck angle and spinal angles, again, using age appropriate words with an 11 year old, doesn't mean when I go into change of direction, I'm saying, oh, well you get this whole angle thing. Let's talk about your positive shin angle when we're trying to hit that change of change of direction kind of thing. And so, yeah, I think you, you pick and choose where you're open and where you're not. And if safety is gonna be a huge aspect, then we're probably gonna do a little more instructing and just take our time with it. Uh, but again, for me, mastery is always the, the stepping point. If an athlete displays that they understand the concept and can can do those things and achieve those positions, well, then we want to move into open dynamic situations as quickly as possible. But if we can't prove that we can do so maybe in a safer manner, then we may have to dial it back a bit. Sure. Uh, along along the lines, too, of like, like teaching skills, self-organization, I know – uh, I'm not sure uh, what's what's the age the age range of USA football. So we, USA football does not actually run any league. So oh, as a, a structure support network, we work with the existing league. So we have leagues that you know play depending on when scholastic starts in your state, being middle school or high school. We can go up to 14, and then you know there's organizations that are playing. I don't even know if we would call it flag, but, you know, playing some of these introductory versions at four and five when kids are just out running around and then uh, organizations are playing tackle at at various age groups, again, based on community needs, community, uh, community desires. So we work across every area, every age, kind of sub 14, and then uh, the different game types within all those age groups. So one thing it does is keep you on your toes. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It seems like there's a lot going on. I, I, I want, I was curious on the age just partially because 
um, let's try to put this in context, but uh, something that's probably more more of a general idea and something that's very fairly um, uh, maybe a buzz in the physical prep sports performance sector is um, the idea of, and it's all, I mean, it's all related too. I mean, I think there's so many overlap areas of what we all do, but the idea of like, like teaching agility, teaching change of direction versus just uh, giving athletes like perception and reaction challenges and letting them self-organize to that challenge. And uh, like, what's, what's your take on, I mean, is there any like formal within the bandwidth of USA football? Is there any sort of formal, like even, even sprinting, like, like any locomotion, like training or, or is it all um, based off of skills and and perception reaction enhancement? I'm sure which, which happens in the course of actual drills and gameplay um, overloading that. Uh, What's, what's like the, the, what's the, I want to say the vibe. (laughs) What's the, the instruction or the philosophy on just movement in general? Yeah. So we, we, in our, we have a program coming out, obviously we, talked about earlier, the football development model, which is as a recognized governing body, it's our version of the USOC's American development model. So some LTAD approaches within football and movement, uh, both locomotion, lateral change of direction, agility are covered in that. And what we're really looking at is with the current societal situation, you know, we talk about lack of free play, phys ed's current status in schools, you know, that our sport coaches, not just football, all sport coaches have to do a great job of helping to make sure we're building robust athletes. So one of our taglines is humans first, athletes second, football players third. And so part of our responsibility as coaches, especially at the youth level, when we're not into high performance, we're into participatory based community sports. So are we developing good humans and kind of what is a good human? (laughs) What should they be able Mm -hmm. to do? But can they bend? Can they run? Can they jump? Can they skip? Do they, are we working on coordination? Are we, are we building the abilities to run, jump, throw? Uh, we, we, you know, advise position sampling. So within like some of our practice structures, we'll have, uh, you know, obviously a good dynamic warmth that's going to include general coordination, crawling, falling, tumbling, rolling, grappling. We're going to talk about specific skill building exercises, whether it's jumping and landing or introducing change of direction, progressing to agility across all levels, just because every human needs that. And then every athlete needs that. And then the back end of practice, we'll, we'll kind of get to the more uh, tactical specific work if needed. And kind of the younger the age group, the more general the training is going to be. So general movements, general physical capacities, and then general sports skill leading into specificity as we get older and we get into high school, obviously uh, it starts to become a little more specific, both technically and tactically, but we still want to make sure we have that thread of continuing to develop their humanistic capabilities across a wide, a wide bandwidth, especially because of the varsity model in football after high school, 98% of kids will never play football again. Mm -hmm. So if we're only trying to develop specialists, where we know the major cutoff point is 18 years of age, we're probably not doing what's best for the long-term health of a, of a pretty significant portion of the population. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I really love that that tagline, that humans first, athletes second, football players third. Was that it? 
Mm-hmm. Man, I love that. I, I just think that's so cool. I, I just think that like even just any any realm of coaching, uh, it's just I think that's no matter where you are, um, whether pro or or a child, I just think that's where it's at. And, well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I was doing a series of clinics this summer, and we were talking about kind of this multi-skill model and saying like I know there's some football coaches, and we could be talking about you know ten year old coaches, and I'm saying I'm asking you to spend some of your time teaching your quote linemen and they're prepubescent. So are they really offensive or defensive linemen? They just happen to be the big kid early on in Mm -hmm. their age. Yeah. But to throw catch and kick. And I know some of you are thinking that's wasting valuable time on something they're not going to do on game day. And my, you know, my response is always like, you know, how complete a human are you? Mm -hmm. You can't approach a stationary object and kick it. How much of a <laughs> athlete are you if you can't catch something that's thrown your way? Like, so if we can have a slow cooking approach and develop these multi-skill participants, just because it's football, where do big guys end up on the baseball field? They end up like at first base or at catcher. And we're going to take a four month block of the year and say, we're not going to let you catch anything because on Friday, you're only going to push other people around. And depending on the age group, I just personally am not comfortable saying that I'm going to hurt your chances at being able to catch an entry pass in the post or hurt your chances at being a good catcher on the baseball field because I'm worried about winning a 10-year-old city championship and all you're going to do on game day is push another big guy. So trying to straddling that line of trying to make sure that we're developing humans and athletes and football players. And then, again, Mother Nature sprinkles her magic fairy dust, puberty hits, kids, you know, body types change. Football is a game for all body types, but whatever your body type morphs into maybe where we ultimately specialize you and maybe we should just slow that roll a little bit before we start making those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I always... I really like that. I, I, I have this like image in my head of like all the linemen having like a kicking competition or something like that. Like, but like Jeremy Frisch says, like at 10 years old, there shouldn't be, oh, I'm 10 years old and I'm the quarterback. You know, I'm 10 years old and I'm the wide receiver or I'm 10 years old and I'm the catcher. Like, like that, it, it's, it's silly, right? Like, but yeah, that, that box so often gets, gets pinned and painted. And just like, I mean, even I'm, I'm 35, man. And like, if I can learn something new, like I, I learned rock climbing when I was like 31 and I just fell in love with it because this, the improvement curve, you're learning a new skill and just the, the joy you get out of the improvement curve of learning something new and doing something different and getting better at it versus the, when you do something the same over and over and over again, and that improvement curve starts to slow it. That's, uh, I mean, it's granted still could be rewarding, but it's also a lot more stressful too. And, and you need that release of like, other things and the joy of learning new skills and the joy of being well-rounded. And I get the idea of eventually being more of a specialist as you get better. But the, even then, like just being, being able to release and do something different and do a new skill and the motor pathways associated with it and everything associated with that, I think is so important. Yeah. I mean, I think especially at those ages, you know, the, the buddy Morris quote, right at, at this age, everything is cross training. So, you know, like when we're dealing with athletes that aren't anywhere close to their genetic potential, everything is improving everything. Mm -hmm. So I'm developing general coordination. I'm developing, you know, balance, control, uh, all those things that are happening randomly. I guarantee you that your big guy is going to hit some particular body angles when they step and plant and reach to try to catch a pass from their teammate that 
they wouldn't be exposed to in a traditional kind of training block. So let's let them explore rotational movements and kicking and throwing. Let's let them explore catching and bending and having to react to this ball that's coming in time and space because he's 10. You know I mean, yes. like it's let's let's be honest with ourselves. And then, you know, even at the, the high school level, like, you know, how many times the, in my fear sometimes for the sake of a coach's resume, you know, we're going to have this kid do one thing and just get really good at that one thing. And he's going to be useful for the team because he can do one thing. And that sounds great for like a victory centric model, mm-hmm. but at the end of the season, it like, what have we done to that athlete? We've actually narrowed his bandwidth because all we ever asked him to do is one thing. And we're going to keep practicing until you're perfect at one thing. Well, now he's going to go on to do all these other things in his life that aren't that one thing. Like, so is that the best model or is uh, robustness kind of the best model and, and, trying to outline that now I'm all for it you know just like our, our training models you know in strength and conditioning the closer to genetic potential the, the closer to high performance levels we get we're gonna have to get concrete loading and a little more focused but early on so much develops so much just because the the body's in this almost magical magical state where it's just I'm connecting neurons left and right and learning what my body is now I'm going through a growth spurt and I have to redo the entire situation then, you know, I start to magically gain weight and I get in the weight room. We're just constantly going through this, this refreshing process of this is my body. This is how it works. This is how it moves. And wouldn't a wider variety of stimulus help us develop those concepts? And then the focus training on the back end, be able to apply them specifically to my, my role on a team. Yeah. I think something that too, that's cool. And I know Jeremy has talked about this Frisch is like, like a skill that you did in a sport or a non, I mean, something that wasn't specific to what you ended up doing. Like maybe you ended up being a soccer player, midfielder, or you, like for me, I ended up and how like a soccer player who was just incredible with like shifting their weight around, uh, was like had a judo background or something like that. Um, yeah. and for me, a connection I would have never made was I was, I played soccer till I was about 12. And so from five to 11, 12, it ruled, like it ruled my life, like in terms of athletics, like that was the main, my main sport. I played everything though. And you know, it was, it had tons of free play and all that stuff. Um, but it was like, I did and eventually it was track and field. I was, a um, a high jumper, triple jumper were my main two events. And it wasn't until I, a couple of years ago, I learned this, how important, how important, like the actual, the kick or the, the ability of a leg to come back from extension swinging forward is to high jump and triple jump. And even the way I, my leg swung in high jump was had a very strong kick element to it. And I actually had coaches try to like fix it, quote unquote. They're like, oh, you're not doing that right. As soon as I tried to switch it, I would jump like eight inches lower. I was like, there's no chance. Like, I don't, I, I, I would just forget about it. But I had no idea how important that was until it, it kind of was revealed to me. But when I was an athlete, I just did it. Like it was just wired in the system. And it, it does make me think, and I, I do, I definitely will always err on the side, at least when it comes to just basic human movements, uh, running and jumping, cutting. And for the most part, not entirely, but I'll, I always want to leave it to free play and mother nature for those elements as much as I can. Like, like, like let that be the first line absolutely and then come in if we have to to refine some things um but i've always i've always loved seeing how how free play and doing different skills can help everything build on each other and even sometimes some things that maybe you didn't think entirely were going to happen no you people come up with 
creative, unique solutions all the time. And oftentimes you'll hear athletes referencing their previous sports experience and like, hey, I learned this from this. I, I took this from this. Now, they may find a creative internal way to apply it to their current constraints. But, it, you know, it's absolutely huge. Um, I was a, a soccer player as well. So when I was like in third or fourth grade, I made one of those little all-star soccer teams. And I quit playing baseball at that age because in during the spring, during baseball season, I was getting to go to like another state and play in a tournament. And that was the coolest thing in the world when you're in fourth grade, right? So I actually played soccer, football in the fall, and then played club soccer in the spring all the way through my sophomore year of high school. And in hindsight, looking back, I think one of the reasons why as an American football player making the transition to rugby was fairly was easier for me, I won't say easy, than some traditional people because I had some free flow sport reading the game mentality. And then football specifically, one of my earliest strengths, I think, at the collegiate level was I was pretty good in zone coverage. I could see patterns and understand principles and the dispersion of wide receivers. And I'm guessing that came from I played soccer a really long time. I played basketball all the way through high school. So I had some of this experience of like, seeing patterns in play of spaces and filling them and opponents trying to distribute themselves. And I wasn't a great athlete. So man to man coverage wasn't, wasn't my strong suit, but I was, I was fairly good in these other concepts. And, you know, I always wonder like, is that from all these previous experiences that I just had seen things, I had patterns, I had a conceptual understanding of how this worked and I could apply it. I don't know the answer, but it's, it's a hundred percent true. And then to your point, you know, let athletes move. I've been very vocal in a lot of my writings on football drills specifically being way too structured, mm -hmm. uh, way too blocked and not allowing any sort of dynamic interaction. There's not enough uh, information points where it, I use the terms. We create a lot of drills. We don't create a lot of situations. Mm -hmm. So we create these situations and do things. Now, again, like I said, the the, the truth is probably somewhere in the gray where if we do some movement skill work, you know, whether we're, we're talking about some lateral shuffling, we're going to do our band resisted shuffle work today in those dynamic environments is the athlete now looking or feeling for some proper angles. That's kind of what I'm hoping happens instead of saying you have to do it this way. Maybe I'm giving you some anchor points and some references that allow me to put more force in the ground. Is my opponent always going to let me get to that position? Absolutely not. He's on scholarship too, right? He's going to try to make your life miserable, but at least we have some concepts and ideas we can reference and apply within those dynamic situations. So I think if done well, we can teach some principles that may help your acceleration mechanics. And maybe those acceleration mechanics unlock new opportunities that you couldn't have accessed before because you can either get to the gap or see the gap. But it has to be coupled with the open side of seeing it and finding it. And then in the dynamic nature of the game, you're never going to hit those exact positions. But maybe you're referencing and getting closer, which is allowing a little bit better force uh, production, a little bit better force transfer, and, and a little bit of a uh, – you're half a second faster. So I like to try to teach and play with some movement fundamentals. But then let's apply them to open situations – as soon as we can, because I think the problem football coaches make too often is we stick with those super structured rote memorization 
show me the perfect technical model drill. And then we never actually see if the player can do it in a situation. They can only ever do it in blocked isolation. Yeah, hundred percent. I, uh, that's, um, I mean, that's definitely one of those things where I just feel like, yeah, the drill, I, like we said, like more, more situations, less drills. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that. That's really good stuff. Like just, just like the idea of, uh, I think we just undervalue like the subconscious and the learning process of athletes so much for, or even like when we say, Oh, that was a good rep. Like you did a good rep there. A lot of it is you did what I, exactly what I told you to do, you know, and like not necessarily rewarding thought process or you're, you're sensing like your body in the situation better, but it's like, it's almost like sometimes the prize is you were a better parrot. Uh, then you know I, and i think about that a lot and because we look at like oh, oh sorry go sorry ahead. to interrupt no so i apologize one of my favorite cues and i know it might not be the right technical term based on the research but when an athlete in one of these open situational so now they're still drills but i think you know what i mean we're creating this situation for them to play through the best cue i can give you is i think is good choice you know what I mean? Like, hey, the gap was open. You took it. Good choice. Mm-hmm. Hey, you adjust your tackle technique based on what the offensive player actually gave you. Hey, great choice. You probably took the choice that's most associated with winning the play in that situation based on my personal experience of having watched the game. I, you know, just like I said, tackling people is all I've ever done, whether it's football or rugby as a player or a coach. So I hope that's worth something. But if I say good choice, like to me – that means we've designed a good drill, a decent situation that makes you adapt and react. And we think you've done what's going to be appropriate to win the situation when you see it on game day. That's so much better than like, man, I love that shin angle, I think. Because that, <laughs> that's not applicable to chaos. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I totally agree with you on that. I, in, in regards to like speed and, and football, this, this is just a thought, but like, do you, does USA football or are your thoughts on like, um, like preferred off season activities for football in the sense of like, I know track and field being a big one, or you have basketball, the common one that's like open space, like kind of like rugby, obviously, but with no tackling, like, is there any suggestions, especially more than high performance? It seems like there's a lot of high school level players who are also extremely good at track and field. Um, any, is there anything in terms of like, almost like a suggested pairing as you move in more into that high performance realm? Yeah. So even in high school, uh, the, the model that, that I always promote is, uh, whatever sport the athlete loves most. So there, right. There's some crossover in grappling. There's some crossover in basketball and the short space change of direction. That's going to be incredibly valuable. We obviously know the speed dynamics uh, or even power dynamics, depending on your event for track and field. But at that age, even as we get closer towards that high performance, that 17 year old athlete, who's probably a division one player, I'm going to say, and we're going to say, you know what, like choose the sport that you actually get some intrinsic enjoyment out of instead of the sport that you think is going to best carry over in into football because we're accomplishing two major goals, which is we're exposing them to new and unique motor patterns or hopefully develop, you know, the uh, overtraining repetitive motion stuff. They're getting to compete in another sport. And I think just competing is, is, is incredibly important for athletes. You meet new friends, new people, new challenges, new team dynamics. And, you know, we all have our, our favorite sports and 
hey, different positions really benefit from the speed development of track and field or the uh, personal control and awareness of leverage and body parts in friction and contact from our grappling-based sports. But if a kid loves basketball, just because he's an offensive lineman, I'm not going to say, hey, you really should be wrestling. And if a kid, mm. you know, loves track and field, I'm not going to say like, hey, well, you know, you should go do this other sport because I've heard it's great for hand-eye coordination and tracking footballs. But if they're motivated by that sport and they enjoy it, just think about how much more benefit they'll get out of their training, their exposure, and that time spent within that second sports season. Yeah, that's definitely a good way to put it. Like, then that fits with like that you're human first, like you know, to do the <laughs> things you love, and and uh, and not necessarily. And yeah, I I like how you brought like the gap grappling up, and that makes me think about my conversations with Kieran and Flat, and like and. Uh, and, and or like Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Frisch was talking about in the last show about just like even just like doing as the warm up for his football team, doing grappling drills, like or wrestling drills as the part of the and the, I'm sure the kids just absolutely loved it. You know, it's um, and so I, that's a really good point. I really I really like that thought. No, it's, it's, well, it's funny. So I've, I exchanged quite a few messages with with both Kier and Jeremy. We spoke, excuse me, a lot on, on this topic, but. For, you know, with our the work with Jeremy, it's, uh, you know, we were featured in an article together just on getting kids over that kind of emotional side of the personal space thing, right? Mm-hmm. Aren't yeah. blocked now or stay out of someone else's personal space. Then you're a nine-year-old. It's your first day of football practice. And you're like, hey, block this guy. I want you to get as close as you can and be mushed up against him. And there's going to be this friction and this pressure. And it's completely foreign to them. I think if we can break down some of those barriers and get them comfortable there, uh, it's it's great. And then there's a, a special spatial kinesthetic awareness of being in those combative grappling situations that are useful for blocking offensive line, defensive line, and in tackling. Right? It's not going to be a perfect carryover, but if we're looking, you know, across the exercise selection spectrum. Are we getting a little more towards like SPE or SPD and SPD than we are completely general exercise? Hey, I don't want you to full tackle somebody in season as often as, you know, maybe uh, that's clearly the best way to get better at tackling is to tackle somebody. But with health concerns or trying to keep our players fresh, we're not going to do that every day. So can I use some of these grappling as a SPD, SPE, bridge the gap a little bit? Yeah, I like that on the transfer training chart. <laughs> I feel like that's uh, that's something too where it's like, you know, we, we look at like the weight room and that was actually the next question I was going to ask you. But I mean, so much stuff for sports is on, it's uh, it's hard to get into that, the, the, the second to top, the SDE portion, portion of that chart in the weight room. Like it's, it's, um, it's, it's just like grappling is just such a, I mean, you could grapple, do grappling in, in, um, I mean, that's not really a barbell activity, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, but I, I was going to ask you, so, you know, football was the first, I mean, to my knowledge, I mean, goes the story with like Boyd Upley and stuff, the first team sport, I, I think track was doing it before this, obviously, but like team sport to bring barbells and weight training and resistance training into the, the fray. And how um how does how do you or what's your thought with USA football on integrating football being kind of that pinnacle um, strength and conditioning model sport? Uh, what's your thought on bringing that in over time with uh, youth athletes into high performance? 
Yeah. So again, going back to kind of that football development model that I had mentioned earlier, you know, we're, we're trying to introduce physical development as early as we can. And it's going to be a much more uh, PE centric curriculum, a much more jammy rich centric idea that our warm up, our skill development periods, our humbling and grappling and things we're going to do during the preparatory phase are hopefully building uh, a robust collection of human movement patterns that our athletes can, you know, can then utilize within that. So we're asking all of our sport coaches to help us develop better humans and better athletes, but taking a little more of a PE context to it as athletes get older and just realistically understanding, you know, right. The way the, the sports model here works as they get into scholastic sports, then kind of the organized weight training often through the school becomes really uh, important to a lot of coaches and kind of how they structure their program. You know, we're big backers, right? That just like we want all of our sport coaches to be certified, like you know, does your school have a certified strength and conditioning coach in it? Like who's designing these programs? Um, everyone has their horror stories about some of the these <laughs> workouts or where they're coming from and how they're, how they're being developed. But I think we would all agree a well-designed, well-executed program, right, is is hugely beneficial to developing athletes, not just football players. And and there's some great high school strength and conditioning coaches out there that are doing amazing jobs with that. We'd love to see more of it. So we're kind of a proponent of it that we just want high quality preparation. And, you know, the outside of kind of the, the big rocks, you're going if I'm not in the building, if I don't know the students, if I don't understand their prerequisite movement capacities, you know, I'm not going to say what you should or shouldn't do or what is or isn't the best idea, but let's make sure that we're getting the right eyes and qualified people putting good programs in place to set the framework for these athletes to really start to develop. I think football is guilty at times because of its long history and ties with strength and conditioning of probably over relying on it. So, you know, we think, Hey, what's the best way to get to be a better football player? Well, the best way to be a better football player is actually to become better at football. But our answer is we're not going to do anything football related for four months. So we can bang heavy weights and do, you know, grind and, and 5am summer mat trails and all this kind of fun stuff, instead of maybe addressing a more holistic approach, strength and power vital for the game of football. Yes. Is building robustness to handle the training load? Absolutely vital for our game. But I think sometimes the coach that isn't as plugged into the totality of physical development, the technical, tactical, social health model, probably leans a little too much on it and just wants guys to or gals to lift weights, get big, jump on some boxes, and we magically think that they're going to be a better football player because of it. It maybe gives them potential to execute their previous football skills with more strength and power, but it's not a guarantee. It's not addressing the technical metrics, and it's definitely not a- addressing the perception action coupling that they're actually going to have to use it on on game day. So it seems to be putting a lot of chips on your table for some potential. Maybe let's work it into a well-designed global program, and I'd be really happy to see a little more of that. Yeah, for sure. It would be, I think, for... I mean, the thing is, I don't know how many people even want to see that or like if you put if you laid out like all the little pieces of what make a good football player and how the strength fits into it as a portion of the program versus a 
oh, just, just go lift and get bigger. You know, like, like, <laughs> like, like if people actually saw the visual of how the whole thing went together, but it's like people only want to listen to, like people decide what they want to listen to, you know? And, and I, I just love like even that, you know, what Jeremy first talked about or like the PE based curriculum early on and that morphing into more of a barbell based training over time like that. And, and it, it almost seems too like the, the PE type thing. I mean, with, with, and, and this is something I have no clue on, but like with the, the cuts of physical education schools, it almost seems like it's almost like maybe not a replacement, but a very strong supplement for a perhaps lack of being able to get those things in, in the course of an ac- in an academic course load throughout this, the school day. It's almost as if, um, I, I don't know, I may be off base, but it's like the sports are almost picking up the slack. If the PE is part of like the warm up, like you're doing that as part of the warm up and being well-rounded, would that be would that be a possibility? I mean that that's what we're proposing. Honestly, is we're saying that you know again we can only control football. We hope all the other sport coaches in your community are doing the same thing. But imagine the positive health benefit for our communities if every sport coach every season was doing a great you know maybe it's an elongated warm up where you're actually spending some time trying to develop some physical tools and you're. You know, you're playing tag with your baseball players, so they're getting evasive movement and quick change of direction and perception action. You're doing your tumbling and falling and rolling at football practice, and we're all doing these great dynamic warm-ups and working on some basic movement mechanics and fundamentals. I do think sport coaches, while they probably didn't sign up for it, in today's modern society are taking more of a role or hopefully should take more of a role and developing those things in our kids. And again, it kind of goes back to if we can just all buy in, hey, human athlete, and then insert your sport third, we'll be doing a huge benefit mm-hmm. to our kids, our kids' long-term wealth, hopefully their long-term health as far as participating in multi-sports, heck, even being healthy, active adults uh, by, by building those things. So we we are asking uh, that of all, of all of our coaches. I guess you can Ask me in five years if uh, how it went or if it was easier or harder than we thought. But yeah, I think it's it's huge just because there's a lot of things happening. We can complain about it and dang kids in their dang Fortnite, or we can create environments that actually help solve the problem. So let's create movement rich physical education based environments through our sporting culture and layer our technical tactical skills on top of that and and take a long-term slow cooking approach yeah that's kind of a thought i've had as i've talked with you and then jeremy and and tommy uh john is like this idea of if it it, it basically like it's almost like if the school isn't going to do it then well then maybe the sports can do it but then the sports have to prioritize the well-roundedness first thing like like human first sports that that go outside of that and obviously youth sports being so huge it's like how much more would youth sports serve the the, the greater uh, good of the athletes and the community if it wasn't oh be on my team and play year round soccer and you're seven but 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 more of like a hey come join this team and be a good human we'll be well rounded and we'll do some phys ed stuff and you know like like it sounds so simple right like to have a human first a human centric sport culture that could really help out and and pick up bridge the gap for you know lack of, a lack a big lack in our society but yet. It's just, it's, it's still got a ways to go. Um, but, but the coaching thing, so this is the last question I wanted to ask you was like, 
like like credentialing like and i think that i know this podcast is probably more in like the sports uh, sports performance track and fieldy end of things i guess if you will or human performance but to me coaching is an essential sport coaching is is an absolutely essential piece of this equation it's it's critical it's where i i think that it's uh what a lot of things revolve around and and so anyways what's your take on like like to like because the sport coach is the easiest it, it, it depends like whether you're hyper obviously pro versus like youth huge spectrum but there's no credentials really required like you can just say i'm a coach you know especially on the youth level and then there you go um like what's your thought on just improving like this like credentialing and educational process and and helping helping coaches with the basically the nuts and bolts of guiding and being a facilitator for athletes yeah, so we offer a coach certification through USA Football. Now, as I mentioned, we don't run leagues, so it's an opt-in model. So the individual leagues here across the country, and there's about 9,500 youth football organizations in the country, they have to select that we're going to credential all of our coaches. They have to choose that they're we're going to set this standard and we're going to certify our coaches. Our certification has focused traditionally on the health and safety aspects of just you're overseeing someone's prized possession. And I'm not trying to say that as like the, you know, the cheesy line everyone says, but if you're going to oversee 25 kids a couple of nights a week out on a football field, you should probably know obviously sudden cardiac arrest, AEDs, emergency action planning, concussion, heat hydration awareness. You know, those are things we're going to address, equipment fitting, and we address blocking and tackling, which are obviously football skills, but we address them in our health and safety certification side because there's such a huge safety component of that. And then over the past couple of years, we have definitely started to layer in modules on coaching kids, uh, communication methods, building methods, things that coaches really need to do. And we'd love to do more on the professional development side and some long-term coaching education on actually how to be a great coach. And that's, I think, an area that we need because the experience an athlete, whether it's high performance, high school, or whether it's at the youth, the athlete's experience is almost 100% dependent on the coach. The coach sets the culture. They set the environment they're going to determine what type of instruction you receive, what learning models are used. Everything about that is determined by the coach. And so if we're not educating our coaches, the best models and the best plans from ivory towers and high quality organizations are going to fall completely flat. The implementation is going to happen, uh, you know, boots on the ground, cleats in the grass by volunteer people across this country that make youth football happen by slightly stipend paid high school coaches towards our six-figure major big-time high school coaches and million-dollar college coaches. But are they even armed with the right knowledge and the right tools to deliver those experiences? And if they're not, where is that education coming from and can we help provide it? So we think it's absolutely vital to have continuing education on high-quality delivery mechanisms and coach development because that's going to ultimately affect participation, retention, and the state of not just our game, but really whatever sport that athlete chooses and whatever, you know, coaching models their coaches are required to go through. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's and like you said, yeah, like the, that coach really does make the sport. I think about the best 
experiences I had. And I don't think I do. I, I, you know, even as a young athlete, I remember shades of different coaches, but the coach really did. And I took it for granted back then. Like I realize it now the coach just made that experience so much of what it was. And yeah, I think the more that, yeah, like you said, like there can be the ultimate ideals in the Ivy tower, but unless it's the, you know, the education and the, or really the, I think the willingness of the people with the cleats on the ground to just give, give their best and continually become better and more educated and uh, to serve our athletes more. I think that's ultimately the direction that we need to go. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you, we always use the example that, you know, you go to the, the barber shop and they have the little certification hanging in the, the mirror, you know, everyone's got their little piece of paper that you have to go to a certified barber. And for the most part, what do you have to do to, to be a, a football coach? You have to have demonstrated previous success. Hey, your record was good mm-hmm. at the last school, your degrees in history, no, uh, under no formal study on physiology, biomechanics, your training load, you know, any of this stuff, uh, your communication, your learning styles, inventories, your student centered versus coach centered models, your intrinsic versus mm-hmm. extrinsic viewing. We could go through all these lists and you just go, well, he was really good at his last school and the boosters are going to like him. He's going to be a great recruiter. So how do we start to weave in the desire maybe? for higher quality development across some of the tools that we believe uh, set coaches up to create high quality experiences, especially at the younger levels. Uh, It's the battle. I think everyone in in the sports industry, strength and conditioning or sport coaches fighting is how do we best give people these tools that aren't just maybe textbooks or the the nuts and bolts. And uh, that's why I have a job. Uh, it's challenging, but I enjoy it, but it, it uh, puts a roof over my head. So I'll keep fighting this fight. Oh, right on. Yeah. Right on Andy. Well, Hey, uh, great, great conversation and great material today. Uh, that that's the end of the time I have for the show. And I think we covered just about all the questions. So thank you so much for your time and appreciate what you're doing. And, uh, thanks again for being on today. All right, that does it. Episode 170 is in the books. Thank you guys for listening, being a part of this journey, this podcast, um, just exploration of all these corners of the field and facets. If you enjoy what we're doing, you can definitely help us out and support us by taking a minute just to go to iTunes or Stitcher, whatever you're listening to this show on. Leave us a rating or review. We'd really appreciate that. Also, our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. would encourage you to visit their online store, blog, uh, shop around, see what they have to offer. They've been a long-time supporter of this show, and we definitely appreciate them. All right, we will see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.